To whom much is given, much is required. With great power comes great responsibility. To whom much has been given, much is expected. Now these quotes have been popularized and utilized by famous people and movies uh, to to depict the biblical stance on stewardship. Because they are reflective of the biblical principle that Jesus brought up when in Luke chapter 12 he said, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Well, today is Harvest Day here at Meadowbrook Baptist Church, a day that we place particular focus on giving back to God a portion of what he has given to us, a portion of what he has entrusted to us. And I've approached this message this morning a little bit differently than I normally do. I'm going to begin with several general biblical principles on stewardship before we look at a specific New Testament example of honorable giving. But let's pray together before we get started. Father God, we love you and we thank you for this time. Lord, I ask now that you would speak to us by your word. Use me in whatever way you see see fit, Lord, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Now, we're going to be covering a lot of ground in a fairly short amount of time. So so hold on, we're going to move quickly. Uh, And I don't know what you think of when you hear the phrase, all in. There are probably a few people here that think of poker chips and a good hand of cards. There are probably others that think of Auburn football, reminiscing about the good old days from a couple years ago, wondering what happened and how it happened so fast. There are probably others, Alabama fans in particular, that could care less, that they uh, are just happy that they squeaked by in the last minute last night. But whoever you cheer for, this morning we are talking about being all in in our devotion to and our commitment to Jesus Christ. And in just a few minutes we'll look at a specific example from Mark chapter 12 of a woman who understood what it meant to allow her faith in God to affect all of her life. But before we do, just five biblical principles on stewardship. And principle number one is this. That everything we have has been given to us by God. Everything we have has been given to us by God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Psalm 50 verses 10 through 12, this is God speaking. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all that live in it. Just a very cursory glance at scripture reveals that what we have, what all of us have, is because God has given it to us, because God has entrusted these things to us. And not just material things, not just things like uh, our cars and our houses and our money and those sorts of things, but also immaterial things, our talents, our spiritual gifts, uh, our children, our families, 
uh, our ministries, our friends, all of these things have been entrusted to us by our Creator. And because they are His, we use them, hopefully, for His glory and for His purposes. It's kind of like those of you that are parents. Um, maybe you have had or have a child who has come to you wanting to purchase you something for your birthday, but they don't have any money to do it. And so you loan them a few dollars to go out and buy you something with your money. Well, the same principle is true in our, in our walk on this earth, that, that everything that we have, God has loaned to us to be used for his purposes, to be used for his glory. And because it is all for him, we need to make sure that our lives and, and the use of our resources reflect uh, him and who he is. So principle number two is that worship must be God-centered. Worship must be God-centered. Worship that is not God-centered is an insult to God. I once heard a theology professor say this. He said, God is both the subject and the object of our worship. In other words, when we come together as the people of God to worship God, God is the object. He's the recipient of our worship. It is directed at him. It is for him. But he's also the subject matter of our time together. That we come together, we sing about him. Hopefully we hear from him. We proclaim truths about him. And so you might say, well, that's a good word on worship. Yeah, I agree with that. But what does that really have to do with stewardship? And I think it's this. It's that when we come together as the people of God in a worship setting, we come together in a posture of humility, recognizing that our time together is not about us, and in a posture of praise, recognizing that it is about him and for him. And when we do that, we come expectant. We come desiring and expecting God to teach us, to challenge us, to transform us more into his likeness. And so as we we come together and as as the Spirit leads us through the singing and, and through baptism and the Lord's Supper and through the proclamation of Scripture and through other elements of worship, then we listen to the Spirit's leadership in our lives. We don't come in a posture of rigidity, but we come in a posture of open minds and open hearts, even if it means bowing on our knees in prayer, even if it means lifting our hands in worship, even if it means going to a friend and reconciling a broken relationship, even if it means walking the aisle to share what God is doing in your life, and even if it means reaching back into your checkbook to give above and beyond what you might have originally intended. You see, there's, there's, a, there's an element of worship that is planned, and that's good. I, I think we all appreciate that when things go together. But there's also an element that's unplanned when we respond to the truths of God in our lives. And because God is the center of our worship, because our time is about him, principle number three, God deserves the first and the best God desires and deserves the first and the best from us. Now, I don't know how you personally feel about leftovers. I know there are various opinions about leftovers. Personally, I love leftovers because they provide a hot, easy meal in just a matter of minutes. 
But I know there are other people who don't like leftovers because uh, it's not as fresh as something else or maybe because that's what they had the night before or whatever. But I'm pretty sure no matter how any of us feel about leftovers, we probably don't usually serve them when we have guests over. Do we? Now, I'm not talking about your family coming in town for Thanksgiving week or for several days at Christmas. I think we all utilize leftovers in those circumstances. But I'm talking about you have somebody, family member, friend, special guest, coming to your house for one evening. We don't pull out what we had to eat the night before. No, because we want them to feel honored. We want them to feel special. And it's similar in our relationship with God. Not because God is concerned about the taste but because what we offer to him reflects how we feel about him. Who he is deserves the best and the first. In the Old Testament, we see examples time and time again of the people of God not doing this, not giving God the first and the best, even though he had asked for it. In Malachi chapter 1, we read about the Israelites offering crippled and diseased animals on the altar. And we can look at that and we can say, man, what were y'all thinking? What were you doing? God explicitly demanded that you give me the first and the best and, and you were giving God the worst. And they were doing that because they felt that they could get away with still sacrificing to God but yet keeping the best for themselves so that they could make a bigger profit on the side. They were getting the best of both worlds, so they thought. But when we hear truths like that, we have to examine our own lives. And I dare say that most of us, when we lay out our weekly or monthly budgets or however you budget, maybe you don't budget, you just look at it in retrospect. But if you budget, most of us lay out our budgets. And what do we do first? We take out our mortgage payments on our expensive houses. And then we take out our car payments. And then we, we set a little extra aside for our, our other costly toys, or our hobbies, or our vacations, or whatever. And then we determine what we can afford to give God, right? Well, church, the Bible teaches that that kind of worship of God is contemptible. That's what it says in Malachi. And this is what, this is what God said in that situation. Malachi chapter 1, he said, Oh, that's, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offerings from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, if we're not going to give God first place in our lives, in all that we are and all that we do, God would rather us not even worship him because we don't get it because we haven't experienced what it is to truly follow him. What we give to God reflects what we think about him. Principle number four, tithes and offerings show gratitude for God's provision. Tithes and offerings show gratitude for God's provision. In other words, we don't give to God out of our resources either because by doing so we somehow earn favor or right standing with God. Remember, that's only by grace. Nor do we give to God because he needs our gifts. 
God doesn't need anything that we have in order to carry out and accomplish the purposes of his kingdom. He is not dependent on us. We are dependent on him. But because of what he's done for us, we are to thankfully and joyfully give back to him. The Old Testament principle of the tithe, or 10%, is a good starting point to give to God. And we don't really have time to look at that very closely, but if we were really going to take the Old Testament principle of the tithe seriously, we would have to factor into account that first the Israelites were required to bring the priests due, and then on top of that they were to bring the regular tithe, or 10% of what they have, and then on top of that every year they had to give another 10%, a second tithe, toward Jerusalem and the needs of Jerusalem. And then every other year, they had to factor in a third tithe, a third 10% that went directly to the needs of the poor. And so, so you do the math, and it's really a lot more than 10%. And that doesn't, even inca- that doesn't uh, account for the, the corners of their fields that had to be left unharvested for the poor. And, and the specific mandate to provide for the poor and the stranger and the orphan and the widow nor does it take into account the animal sacrifices that had to be offered for sin. Now granted, Israel was a theocracy, and we are not. But the principle is the same, that God desires sacrificial giving. And when we do so, he promises to bless us. And we read that text this morning from Malachi chapter 3. He promises to bless our faithfulness, possibly materially, definitely spiritually. Principle number five, sacrificial giving demonstrates dependence on and faith in God. Sacrificial giving demonstrates dependence on and faith in God. And I won't say a lot about this one, but uh, suffice it to say that when God asks us to follow him, And to make him Lord and to recognize his lordship in our lives, it does mean putting aside ourselves, recognizing that we don't sit on the throne. We just sang about that, didn't we? God, take my heart. Be center in my lives. And when we do so, when we give sacrificially to the point that we feel it, it demonstrates a certain level of trust and dependence on God that he is going to provide for us us. Now just a couple weeks ago we looked at the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And and we, we concluded from that that what's being said there is that God desires all of us to love God with all that we are, everything about us. And one of the greatest threats to complete surrender and devotion and love for God is materialism, is it not? Because we love stuff. And stuff is bought with money. And the Bible says a lot about money and the dangers of being ruled by money. Remember that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, you cannot serve both God and money. And the writer of Hebrews warned us uh, in this way. In Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5, he said, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. In other words, don't put your trust in what you have and what you've earned, what you've been given in this world, because those things will pass away, but put your trust in God. Friends, we cannot compartmentalize our lives as believers, giving God rule over certain areas of our lives, but not others. So look with me now 
at a woman from Mark chapter 12 that recognized that when it comes to following God, you are either all in or you're not in. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 44. We're going to look at this text very briefly. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So here's the setting. Jesus is sitting in the temple area looking at the temple treasury. Now the treasury was the offering box. It consisted of 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles that were used to collect offerings that were given uh, to support the ministry of the temple, that were used to support the priests, and that were used to provide for the needs of the poor. So Jesus is sitting in this area, and the temple treasury was located in the court of the women. Now, this doesn't mean that guys sat there uh, to pick up chicks. This, this means that this was the farthest area in the temple that the women were allowed to go during that day. And so men and women were both allowed there. Jesus sits down and he watched many, many wealthy people put in large amounts into the treasury. Now, in a day when your currency is comprised of coins, you not only maybe watch them, but, but he could hear them as well as the coins landed in the bottom of the receptacles. And then in verse 42, he says, but a poor widow came. Now, the use of poor and widow together probably emphasizes that she was the poorest of the poor. Because every widow in that day had a hard enough time providing uh, for herself after her husband had passed away. It was a, a time and a day and a culture that was uh, dominated, uh, if you will, by men. And so the use of poor and widow together, this was a poor woman a very poor woman, and she came and she gave this offering uh, of two very small copper coins or two lepta. That's the Greek word, and what that is referring to, those are the two smallest, that was the smallest coin in circulation in first century Israel, worth only a fraction of a penny, the NIV uh, translates. In reality, they were worth one one hundred and twenty-eighth of a denarius, which was one, considered a fair wage for uh, one day's labor. So very minimal offering. This is what she gave. The smallest of the small, two small copper coins. Now, we live in a day uh, when you can't even hardly get rid of coins, can you? And some of you may know what I'm talking about. If you are standing in line somewhere and you, you try to pay for something with change... Uh, everybody behind you is probably going to get mad at you because you're taking too long. You're, you're going to be labeled a cheapskate. You're having to pull out all, I mean, come on, spare change? Why don't you just pay with something else, plastic or, or, or dollar bills or something like that? And I can remember as a child, as I'm sure many of you can as well, putting change into my personal piggy bank and being excited about the day when it was finally full enough to take it to the bank and exchange it for dollar bills. Because dollar bills seemed like they were worth so much more. And just the other day, 
Ashley and I actually took Kinsley's piggy bank for the first time. We were going to exchange it for some real money. Actually, we were going to put it into her bank account. True story. Um, so we took her piggy bank, and it's a small little piggy bank. doesn't hold a lot of change, but it had accumulated some change uh, over several months that we had found around the house or we had contributed or grandparents had contributed when they'd uh, come to stay with us. And so we took it to uh, our bank one Saturday morning. And I was excited. We had got it together along with other change that we found lying around. And I put it up on the, the bank counter, uh, anxious to see how much it was. And we were quickly denied. Our bank doesn't even have one of those coin counting machines anymore. Now you have to go somewhere else like Publix or Walmart and, and put it in their, mach- their machine. And they exchange uh, money to you. But not before first taking out a pretty hefty percentage fee for themselves and it's your money you got to pay them to get your own money back you see even in a day uh, a time uh, where we would consider ourselves to be uh, living in a somewhat um, a hurting economy the value of spare change is still slowly going out the window but look back at Mark chapter 12. Because the beauty of Mark chapter 12 is that we see that God desires sacrifice over some. God desires sacrifice over some. God has no problem with change, with coins, as long as they are not your spare change. As long as they are sacrifice for him. And look at Jesus' response to this poor widow as she put in these two very small copper coins. Verse 43 says, Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into into the treasury than all the others. Verse 44, They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. And so Jesus responds to her offering, though minimal as it looks, And basically says that this poor widow, although she gave two small pieces of change, hardly worth anything in terms of sum or amount, she actually gave more than all these rich people that went before her combined. And when Jesus says in verse 44, they all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on, He was likely saying that this was all that she could afford to set aside to live on for that day. Now, we don't operate that way today, at least not most of us. Uh, We budget in in longer periods of time, but this was a time when this was not uncommon. And so likely the picture is these these two small copper coins were, were what this widow could afford to purchase her bread or her cup of soup, or whatever she needed to sustain herself for another day. But instead, she gives it in this moment of worship to God, trusting Him to provide for her needs of the day. And I dare say that not many of us operate that way. Because when when we examine the way that we spend our resources, what God has given to us, what God has entrusted to us, 
And we begin to add up what we spend on our expensive houses and our cars and, and our favorite football teams and our vacations and on uh, Walt Disney and, and even on what we might spend on lunch today. What we give to God begins to shrink. But God desires sacrificial giving. Now don't hear me saying that God desires us to be careless with what he's given us. I definitely think scripture is saying that we have a mandate to provide for our needs and the needs of our families and to prepare for things that most certainly will happen, expenses that will come. But I think what the Bible is saying here is that God desires us to trust in him to the point of giving our all for him, even our money. And so I challenge you this morning because I think the Bible challenges all of us not just to give God out of our affluence, not to give to God just out of our extra, not out of our abundance, but to sacrificially give to him out of gratitude for what he has done for us. Now, in conclusion, I want to very quickly tie this to the New Testament church. Because the reality is the New Testament doesn't really talk explicitly about the tithe like the Old Testament does. But the New Testament does talk about giving generously, giving cheerfully, giving sacrificially. In fact, hear these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 when, when Paul is writing and he talks about generosity and he says this, beginning in chapter 8 verse 1, he says, And now, brothers, we want you to know that the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Verse 3, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. And hear these words from chapter 9 of the same book, verses 6 and 7. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so we see in the New Testament examples and mandates to give and to support the needs of the poor and the ministry of the church. In fact, in Philippians 4, we read about Paul taking up an offering from the church in, uh, at Philippi. And we also read about Paul taking up a collection for the poor in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem. And we read in 1 Timothy 5 about the mandate to care for and to provide uh, for the needs of the elders, the leaders in the church. And so in light of all God has done for us, both materially and especially spiritually, the question, how much am I required to give, is probably not a very good question. In fact, a far better question in light of what we've been given is probably how much should I keep. And I want to encourage you, there are all sorts of good Christian organizations out there that are working tirelessly to provide for the physical and spiritual needs of people in this world, all around this world. And when possible, we should most definitely support those. But I want to encourage you this morning to give to the church first, the local church first, because God has established the church and he loves the church. He calls it the bride of Christ. And it was his design, his plan to carry out his mission, spreading his fame in this world. 
So this leads me to the final principle that I want to leave you with this morning, and that is this. What we give to the church is a reflection of what we think of God. What we give to the church is a reflection of what we think of God because he is committed to the church and because he has designed the church. And there will no doubt be times in your life where you perhaps disagree with a decision that's made in your church or possibly even in the allocation of a certain resource. But I want to encourage you this morning that even in those times, to remain committed to the church, to remain committed in your personal and family involvement, to remain committed in your attendance, to remain committed in the areas of service within the church, and even to remain committed in your giving to the church because it's God's design and it's God's plan. And ultimately, we give to God and the ministries and purposes of God because he has given so much to us. We give to God because we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. In other words, we give to God because God gave his life so that you and I who were dead in sin could have real life, eternal life in him. Jesus has given his all for you. Does your life reflect that you are giving your all to him? Let's pray. Father God, once again, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for this hour of worship, Lord, and I pray that that's truly what it's been, and I pray, Lord, that it has been about you and that you've received the honor and the glory, and I pray that you would continue to speak to us about what it means to be faithful stewards of what you have entrusted to us. Lord, we recognize that all things that we have are from you, and we desire as your people to use them for your glory. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in doing so. In Jesus' name, amen.